Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Happy Moment. This is the premiere episode of season two. Thank you for joining me today. And I couldn't think of a better way to celebrate launching season two than with author Joseph Sale. Joseph, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Dan. It's so awesome to be on the podcast, and I'm really looking forward to it. Awesome. So, Joe, for people who are unfamiliar with your work, how would you describe your writing? <laughs> this is a really difficult question, I think, for any writer to answer. Um, I often say that writers are the worst authority on their own work. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's the readers, really, who decide these things. But having said that, I have uh, spent a lot of time, especially recently, actually thinking about you know, what kind of genres do I operate in? What is the main thrust of what I do? And I've kind of come up with uh, a sort of simplified way to explain. So I think uh, in the order of quantity, the number one thing I write is dark fantasy. Then second down from that, I write epic poetry. Uh, that one's a bit out there, but a lot of people actually say that the epic poetry is is my best stuff. So um, if you are at all curious uh, and you've never experienced epic poetry before, I, I can highly recommend it. Um, and the last thing I write is um, non-fiction books on occult topics or topics related to uh, creatives harnessing their, their creative uh, powers. Uh, obviously, that applies to writers and writing craft, but I like to think that some of the principles in there are universally applicable, whatever your kind of artistic medium is, if you're, you know, a painter or an actor or um, uh, you compose music, you know, I, I like to think that the principles are fairly universal and yeah that's so that's also what i uh, recently have been doing a lot more of but um it will be a long time before that overtakes the dark fantasy and probably it never will because uh, that's the thing i enjoy the most because <laughs> dark fantasy is awesome because dark fantasy is awesome and uh let no one tell you any different and of course uh, you know dark fantasy is a bit vague in a way isn't it because as you know, as a fan, I mean, there are infinite subgenres within that. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, do you remember what got you started into that genre? Yeah, that's a really good question. So, I mean, when I was younger, I, you know, Tolkien was the man, as as he was for many of us, and um, that really was my first introduction to kind of fantasy. I was always interested in the horrific and the hellish and you know i remember um reading shakespeare's macbeth and it just blowing my mind in a million and one ways and so i guess you know you could almost argue that that was the beginning you know macbeth really is like a dark fantasy yes there's a uh, a historical setting of, of medieval Scotland but you know there are these witches and these prophecies and these ghosts there's actually a lot of supernatural activity going on there and um, it has this kind of mythical dimension to it and and what's really fascinating about something like Macbeth of course is that all of the usual uh, elements of a, a fantasy such as the landscape you know that's a really important part of fantasy is the world um, Shakespeare has to convey all of that to you uh, without you seeing it. I mean, yes, you might have a stage backdrop 
um, there might be some props, but fundamentally his language is what is conjuring those images in your mind um, through his dialogue. And that, that's, that's a really, really fascinating thing to consider uh, in the modern world. But I would say my first proper introduction to it came actually like quite late, really. I, I read simply, I read Stephen King at university and I'd never read King before and I didn't really, um, if I'm honest, I didn't think much of him, which may be a bit arrogant, but I kind of, I didn't really know what it was. Uh, I was judging without having uh, experience, which is something I try not to do at all now, but I did a lot of them. And, but I remember reading The Stand and a, a switch flipped. Something just profoundly changed. And I was like, this, this is it. Um, you know, that that's a horror novel, one might argue, but it has so many mythical dimensions to it, biblical dimensions, magical, occult dimensions, the sheer grandeur and scope of it. And, and what I realized was um, all my writing attempts up until the point, up until that point, had been kind of just Tolkien imitation. So I wrote loads and loads of stuff and they were all really bad, kind of hackneyed fantasy novels. You know, didn't really have anything uh, to say and, and, and weren't really in my voice, you know, they were imitations and that's okay. We, I think every artist, again, in any medium has to start with imitation, it's the only way. But when I read King, I, it just tapped into something inside me and I, it awakened me to like a whole new realm of literature, you know, in terms of more con reading more contemporary literature, because I was kind of a bit back to front, you know, I think a lot of people start reading contemporary novels and literature and they enjoy them and then they maybe go back and read the classics, but I kind of started on the classics just because that was what I'd been drawn to and what I was interested in and I had the benefit of um, uh, my dad, who is, um, you know, like an amazing poet and was an English teacher and, you know, knows so much about kind of classical literature. So, so I came about it in a slightly strange way. You know, I had this classical background, but hadn't really read much contemporary stuff. And then I read The Stand and it was just, you know, as I say, this light bulb, this flip, this switch was flipped. And I was like, I, I need to write like this. And that kind of led to me writing my first ever uh, dark fantasy book, really, which all, and it also had some post-apocalyptic elements because imitation is the serious form, uh, sincerest form of flattery. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so that that was like I think you know probably I would say the stand was my first introduction to dark fantasy, and maybe some people would say that doesn't quite count. But um, for me, it felt like a dark fantasy novel more than a horror novel. There's some really horrifying scenes in it, but you know it has a dark lord, Randall Flag. It has um, a team of adventurers. You know, um, and the American landscape has been changed by this apocalyptic event to the point where it feels like a fantasy landscape, uh, and there is magic in it, and there are dreams and prophecies, and so I think that was the um, that was my true introduction. You know, I've never actually read very much Stephen King. I think I've read one of his books, but mm. I'll have to change that soon, especially if you're <laughs> recommending it. Yeah, I think King is uh, a really interesting writer i don't like everything that, that king does and i, I certainly um 
mourn the fact that he's gone more into kind of writing psychological thrillers now, but just because it's not a genre that appeals to me as much, there's nothing wrong with it, but it just doesn't appeal to me personally as much. But when he's good, man, he is so good. <laughs> and um, I actually do think that uh, sometimes he's at his best when he is at his most fantastical. Um, and I guess you know, I've never read The Dark Tower. I, I really want to. Um, the the poem that inspired The Dark Tower, uh, Child Roland to The Dark Tower Came by Robert Browning is actually my all-time favourite poem. So it, it's crazy that I've not read the book series, really. But, you know, again, that's kind of King taking on, like, really dark fantasy. Um, and, yeah, like, you know, The Stand is, is an amazing book. And some people say, oh, it's too long and it you should read the abridged version. And some people say, no, it's the unabridged versions where it's at. I, I've read the unabridged one. I've not read the abridged one, so I can't comment. Um, but for me, like it, it was just a completely life-changing experience and it completely changed what um, I believed literature was capable of really. And Randall Flagg will just be, forever seared into my brain <laughs> um <laughs> uh, you know he he was a game changer in terms of like what a character and a villain could be and uh so i'm you know i've got a, an eternity of debt uh, and gratitude to king for kind of showing me the way and showing so many people the way you know so you mentioned that the character randall flag is seared into your brain so let me ask you this uh between character plot and setting do you think one is any more important than the other or would you say they're all about equal what a devious question i love it <laughs> i love it so challenging um i would add one fourth element to that uh, so you said character plot and setting but there's one fourth element and that's structure ah. now um and that is slightly different to plot uh, and i can go into that uh, if you want but just briefly to say anyone who um, is familiar with, with me and my nonfiction work knows that I'm a big advocate of the five-act structure. And I think that this yes. is, uh, yeah, yeah. I mentioned it a few times. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sort of great chagrin and frustration of anyone who has to listen to me rant about it. But uh, I really think it's a powerful tool for writers. And I think all the greatest stories use the five-act structure. And so um, if I think structure's got to be up there as one of, if not the most important um, elements, you can get away with so much if you know how to structure your book. And when we say structure, we're talking about like storytelling, you know, in its rawest form. Um, if you can tell a story and by that i i'm i infer i mean kind of structure your your work then you know if some of your dialogue's a bit corny or some of your characters are slightly flat it doesn't stand out as much it doesn't i mean obviously in an ideal world one would master you know at least three out of the four you know or or you you, you know you, you give as much as possible to each element and and you know that's what we're all working towards as writers is improving in, in as many fields as we can but uh fundamentally i think the structure is like the the one that is uh often neglected but actually makes the biggest impact in terms of mm. writers improving their craft. But I would say second to that, I would say character, absolutely. 
I think um, I was reading a book the other day and there was so much about the book. It had been recommended to me by a friend and it was a on paper it was such a great recommendation you know they they knew me really well and it it was so sweet you know i was like wow they really know me but unfortunately the the concept of the book was brilliant the setting was brilliant uh, and he and some of the plotting was brilliant but um the structure was off and the characters were just which is so bad, Dan. I can't convey to you how, <laughs> how like dull and uninteresting and and edgelord, you know, like really bad. Ed- like an edgelord that's self-aware can be really fun and really cool. And sometimes if, you, and if you're going to go edgelord, you've got to go all the way. You've you've got to go one hundred percent all in, and if you do that, you can still pull off like an edge lord character. Like I think some of my characters are edge lords. Like Craig Smiley's an edge lord, um, but he's so over the top and he's so all in that I, I think I just about can get away with it. But uh, if you don't go all in, then what you instead have is just like a really feeble attempt to kind of shock your reader and um you know we've seen game of thrones now we've seen we've seen it all before you know like really ruthless morally gray characters are mm-hmm. not interesting in and of themselves you you have to make them interesting um i think there's this like movement in in dark fantasy at the moment which i find quite quite tedious for like uh really boring anti-heroes you know anti-heroes are not just assholes there's more to them than that yeah um i'm interested if you have a a favorite anti-hero um uh, dan thinking thinking about it um um i don't know that's a tough question it is a tough Uh, question i was just i was you see i asked you to buy myself time (laughs) (laughs) that's smart thinking because i was going to ask you (laughs) (laughs) but it's um you know Really good characters are really important too. Um, to return to your original question, I, I think you know I, they're all important. You know, a, a really dull setting can drag a novel down or a story down, uh, and you know, a plot that's kind of weak can also drag a book down. But you know, I think if you don't have interesting characters, so much of the heart goes out of the book, and then if you don't have a sense of structure then everything will just feel meandering and aimless, even if you have great characters. You know, I think um, there are so many literary fiction books uh, that have good characters. Actually, there are a lot that have really bad characters as well, to be fair. But, but uh, you know, a lot the, the common mistake I see with, like, literary fiction um, or more, more kind of experimental fiction is they create these really interesting characters, uh, sometimes in these really interesting settings, um but there's there's just no structure there's there's just no sense of one thing leading to the next and that's what that's what structure is really about is that domino effect so Mm. yeah but hey being an artist isn't easy it's not easy to do any of these things so (laughs) uh, i shouldn't be too harsh um I, i in fact i only felt i could be uh, so harsh on that author who shall not be named uh, work because they're actually quite a successful big author um and 
you know, I expected a lot, therefore, and they came highly recommended. Um, so I was really disappointed that such a such a primal building block of story, such as character, you know, was was missing. And it meant that no matter how clever the concepts were or how cool the world building was, it just couldn't it couldn't sustain my interest for 400 pages, you know, if I don't care about the people involved. Yeah, you know, when I when I think about the different elements of a story um, and I think of a setting, I can't really think of any book I've read where the, the setting has really been burned into my mind as mm. opposed to like, like a really good character or a really good plot. Um, so I guess personally speaking, I'd, I'd probably put setting uh, lowest on the list there. Yeah. But, but at the same time, if the setting is kind of drab, I'll notice that too. So it's something that still needs to be paid attention to. I mean, I always think that really good settings are like characters in themselves, right? Like they often say um, in the TV show Firefly that uh, the serenity, the ship they're on is like the, the, the extra character um and the ship has a kind of personality to it and so that setting that is so constant throughout a whole tv series um becomes a character in, in that way and i think i feel mm. that way about like jack vance and the dying earth dying earth is such a um quirky and strange world that you feel like it is a personality um but you're you're definitely right. I think that I'm always more likely to remember a character uh, over a world, and um, and actually, this is almost going into some occult territory, really, because it's uh, we in the West, and especially we we tend to distinguish these things. We we distinguish seer and seen, uh, subject and object, uh, observer and observed. Um, and in reality, so we, we separate the, the quote-unquote object from its environment. But in reality, that's a bidirectional relationship, the environment and the thing that inhabits it. Well, there, is, there, is, there are not two things. There's just one thing, um, and it's a composite. And so what we separate as like animal and, and environment aren't really separate. They're in this, uh, this relationship. They're, they're this this single organism really with multiple parts right just as our bodies have got all these cells in that are all doing these different things and different or you know we're multiple organisms really um and we we comprise this kind of illusion called the self uh just getting a bit heavy but but you know <laughs> i think it's 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 interesting to think about uh in terms of the greatest writing and the greatest narrative because um really great books you know character and environment and plot are all one right the the personality and the character is generating the plot and that character is the way they are because of the environment and the environment influences the plot like lord of the rings is a really good example if um if you think about the plot is dependent on the world because the one ring can only be destroyed in mount doom if if the plot was we need to destroy the ring, but there was no Middle Earth, they would just 
put it in a fire or smash it with a hammer and be done with it, right? <laughs> the, the, the world building is creating the plot and also the world building is creating the characters. So you have this cast of characters of all these different races that have to come together and work together as a team in order to overcome evil, right? And so all of those three elements are deeply intertwined and that is why it is such a work of genius really while you're talking i was thinking about my uh my favorite anti-hero and uh i don't know if he's more villain or if he i could consider him an anti-hero i'd say dalamar the dark from dragonlance oh wow yeah you know on one hand he's uh he's a black robed wizard black robes are evil but uh he's not you know he's not like full-on evil like some of the other characters like he still shows the capacity to uh make logical decisions mm. and i guess not support certain other evil people <laughs> if that makes yeah. sense i don't know if i consider him a hero but he's yeah. he's definitely not 100 percent on the evil spectrum that's awesome that's really interesting and yeah, I uh, a trope I love is um, when an evil character is defeated by like a worse evil character. That's um, that never gets old for me. Norm- normally, it's like um, a kind of pathetically evil character gets destroyed <laughs> by a badassly evil character, and that's just right. so sweet. That's Chef's kiss. That um, uh, yeah, no, that's a really good choice. Uh, I love an evil wizard. I think we could talk about plot and characters and all that for quite some time, but I'd like Mm. to talk about some of your own work now. For those of you who listened to my last episode, you know that Joe was one of the contributors to the the Blood Bank anthology. Uh, He has a short story in there called The Stone. Uh, Joe, would you like to tell us a little bit about The Stone and the anthology? Yeah, thank you so much. And th- thank you for reviewing that. You know, you, you did such an amazing job because praising... Oh, thank you. Yeah, well, praising that many short stories in in such a concise way uh, and a short space of time is really, really difficult. You know, I really struggle uh, reviewing anthologies. Uh, I do a lot of book reviews, as you know, and uh, it's one of the things that I always struggle with because there's so many kind of worlds to access and different styles to talk about. And it's a lot and you, you absolutely smashed it. So I'll just um, hand over all Appreciate my reviews to you in future. So. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> but, but yeah, it was, um, I was, I was contacted by Bloodbound, and, and so I was actually invited to, to come into the anthology, which is a first for me. And I was deeply, deeply honored. Um, I love what, uh, Bloodbound do. I've been published with them before in their Burnt Fur anthology, and I think they publish some really, really interesting fiction. They've actually they actually publish some incredible dark fantasy novels. They published a novel called Bleak Warriors, Bleak Warrior by Alistair Rennie, and it's honestly one of my favorite fantasy novels of all time. It's crazy. It is the most crazy thing you will read. Um, it's it's like a black metal music video on acid, uh, <laughs> like with Tolkien thrown in. It's just it's so crazy. But um, so I, I love what they do, and 
it was a real honor to be invited into the anthology and um, alongside some amazing authors like uh, Christopher Triana and Neil Gaiman and uh, Mona Cabani and, and, and so, Lucy Leitner, like so, so many, you know, awesome authors. So it was really humbling to, to kind of be in their company. Uh, uh, and The Stone was a story that uh, I wrote three short stories kind of around this idea of the tower outside of time, which is the title of my third book in the Illuminad trilogy. So I wrote, um, I have a fantasy series called the Illuminad and the first book is dark clarity. And then there's the tunnel and then the tower outside of time. And when I, when I was writing the tower outside of time, I kind of, I wanted to put so much into that novel and I had too much really. <laughs> so what I ended up doing was writing the novel and then writing kind of three short stories uh, that were kind of about the tower, but um, not set in, well, not set in that universe, but but not not with any of their characters. So it was like completely new kind of characters and stories that were around and not in the same time period or anything. So I could so I could basically just kind of do what I wanted with this concept because I found it a really fascinating concept. Um, and one of the stories I wrote for it was The Stone, and it was heavily inspired by um, some really occult stuff, uh, like the work of Kenneth Grant. Um, and it was also inspired by the film Mandy with Nicolas Cage. Uh, there's a scene in it where they have this... Um, talisman called the horn of abraxas and when you blow it the um the scions of hell uh arrive on um on motorbikes and and <laughs> and um oh, what are the four-wheeled ones called um quad bikes quad bikes quad bikes it, it's a bonkers film mandy again some some really gnarly dark fantasy um if you like that kind of thing and so, yeah, I, I guess from these things and at living, I used to live in Bournemouth, which is where the story's set, and right by the sea. And when you when you live by the sea, and you're a weirdo like me, you kind of have this feeling of um, connection to something vast and infinite. You know, the the yes, it's swimming in the sea is lovely, bathing or sunbathing on the beach is lovely. Bournemouth has one of the best beaches in the UK, if not the best. Uh, but, but you also, I think, have this... Um, you know, the sea is scary, man. Don't contemplate it for longer <laughs> than five minutes and you start to kind of uh, get the heebie-jeebies, or at least I do, this, this, this kind of sense of something so vast and infinite that's just kind of lapping at the shores of your reality. And so much unknown things out there. Absolutely. Like they always, the, the, the often cited uh, statistic is that we know more about the surface of the moon than we do about the deep ocean, right? And I'm right. fascinated by the ocean. So, um, so all of these things, personal, a bit of personal experience, a film, some some reading, um, some non-fiction kind of reading, all of that came together and formed the incredibly weird story that is The Stone. <laughs> Would you like to read your first sentence? 
I would, I would. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a shocker. Um, very different to my usual approach to opening a story, uh, I should say, but I, I do enjoy it. So I hope your listeners will enjoy too. But Christ, it was a fucking big toad. Yes. <laughs> That's an excellent line. <laughs> Thank you. And, and maybe, you know, maybe it was the fact that uh, the, the story before yours, I think, ended on kind of a grim note. And so just to, to see that as the very next thing I read made it all the more enjoyable. But uh, <laughs> it, it really put a smile on my face. Yeah, it's kind of like um, try, I was trying to really open the story in media rays, to use the technical term, right? It's Latin, it means in the middle of the thing. And, you know, I think short stories work well like that. You kind of just feel you stumbled into a dream. And so, you know, starting a story with the word but, um, but Christ, you know, it's like, a, <laughs> like a, an exclamation of emotion a thought you you kind of so you just come into it right in the middle and that's that's what i was aiming to do um but yeah i did make myself laugh when i <laughs> when i wrote that uh, as well and um my my mother actually uh, used to collect kind of um frog sculptures like little little frogs metal frogs stone frogs glass frogs mm. Um, and so I grew up with all these kind of frogs and toads around me. And, um, I would find out later in my life that, uh, toads and frogs are occult symbols for, for a variety of reasons. Um, one reason is that they, they leap, they hop. And so they are the hoppers between worlds, right? They, they, they leap between worlds. Um, and of course, um, you know, it's the the venom of certain toads in the the Amazon that they excrete from their back that is a hallucinogenic um, slime. <laughs> so uh, the the shamans use this in uh, small proportions, I imagine, to um, you know undergo their kind of spirit quest. So the, the the toad or the frog has always had this connection to. Uh, other worlds and hallucinogenic experiences and all of that so um yeah that's kind of some of the thinking behind it but also yeah it, it was just like a it was a funny way to open the story um a very british way to open the story i think, <laughs> uh, I think a line like that definitely draws a reader in and makes them interested uh, how much stock do you normally put in the the first line of a story yeah, I am one of those people who really subscribes to the idea it's one of the most important things um, you'll ever write. Uh, I swept my first lines. I, I believe that a first line should really uh, encapsulate the entirety of your story, really. If you actually really, even a, even a funny line like the one I wrote for The Stone, uh, actually there's quite a lot, I think, personally going on there that is telling you about what's going to happen in the story you know the word christ appears in that opening line read into that what you will um you know there's there's 
that opening line is like the first frame of a movie and a really good movie the first frame will tell you everything you need to know about the movie um and i i think it's so important and and you know i want to um i used to train in a lot of martial arts and i i trained with this chinese master called uh, master lu yong who is um a very very amazing man just just full of uh kindness and 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 love and and generosity of spirit and also just so dangerous just so unbelievably dangerous but um he he once said i i can tell how good your kung fu is after a single step and uh, i always thought wow that was that's quite like uh quite arrogant or whatever as a kid you know right uh, but now i see totally he was completely right when you um have read enough books or practiced enough kung fu you know i read the opening line of a story and i know if i'm in safe hands or not and um it's and obviously i'm an ed- editor as well so it's like a like a triple layer of it you know for me um i spend a lot of time helping authors work on their opening lines and yeah so for me first line's really important i always when if i'm in a bookstore um, and even when i'm you know looking at books online i will click through to that preview and i will read the opening line and if the opening line uh, doesn't strike me um then i just not going to bother because it's you know i'm sure there are books out there where the opening line's not ideal maybe they didn't view it as that important they didn't work on it and the book really builds and it gets really really good and and but you know um and i might read a book like that if it came highly recommended but for me personally um i want to know from the outset am i in safe hands or not is this someone who really knows how to tell a story and the opening line is an incredibly accurate i feel barometer of that um, you can tell a lot about a writer and about the story from the first line and just to give an example one of my all-time favorite opening lines um is grady hendrix my best friend's exorcism the opening line is the exorcist, the exorcist was, dead. was dead yes it was. <laughs> yeah. the exorcist was dead i mean boom right you know everything you need to know it's a story about an exorcism um there's possibly a, a satanic panic setting uh, hope is possibly lost because the man who's supposed to be getting rid of the demons is dead um it's going to be a simple like a, a like a not simple story but a, a direct story right it's it's a, it's not a fancy stylistic way of writing it's it's direct it's cutting to the heart um so it's hot you know, there's a horror element it's just so it conveys so much and it's so impactful and it just immediately makes you ask well you know what happens next like <laughs> this is where we start yes. what happens next um brilliant writing i'm glad you like actually, it actually yeah i actually picked that book up uh after you recommended it to me um so thank you for that it's a very good book oh, and my last trip to the bookstore, I actually picked up another Grady Hendrix novel, the uh, the Final Girl Support Group. Oh yeah, um, haven't started it yet, but it looks quite interesting. Mm. Um, oh, it's a killer premise. Yes, yeah, I, I think so. Uh, so, Joe, you mentioned being an editor, so you help people with their writing, and along that 
same note of helping people with their writing, I'd like to congratulate you on your latest release, The Divine, a uh, nonfiction book. Uh, would you like to tell us about that? Yeah, that's very, very kind of you, and thank you. That really means a lot. Um, when I was, um, you know, as an editor, I uh, ended up writing quite a bit about my philosophy of writing and storytelling. And partly that was, um, you know, we're encouraged to generate content these days, you know, but partly I think it was ordering my own thoughts. I, um, when it's easier when you're either talking to someone or, or writing something down to kind of organize your thinking on something. So, you know, as I'm editing, questions come up of like, should it be this or that? Or should I do this or that? And there's, there's obviously the very basic level of just grammar, but uh, I'm more of a developmental editor. So whilst I can proofread and I do proofread, um, proofread developmental is really where I'm at so that's about structure it's about style uh, it's about you know character development it's about these kind of bigger things and that's where I really enjoy operating and where I feel I can make the best difference I'm actually not a very precise detail orientated person I can do it I've trained myself to do it but my natural modus operandi is definitely in the broad uh, brush strokes and the you know the, the 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 style and the the structure so answering these kind of questions about style and structure uh and writing them down uh, over the years i developed this kind of backlog of essays and i had a vague thought that one day maybe i would put some of these essays into a non-fiction book and it might be interesting for people to read and it would be like a really good way for people to access some of my content uh, much more cheaply you know obviously editing's not cheap and not everyone can afford to have me do a full developmental edit of their whole book you know i i try to keep my prices as fair and low as possible but um you know you have to kind of make a living i do this full time so um so i thought well you know if you do a book and it's 99p on amazon that's great because then somebody can get access to loads of really useful information for you know hardly anything at all uh, but I didn't, I couldn't kind of go through with it. I couldn't, um, there was something missing. And um, then basically I had a religious experience. Um, uh, that's the honest truth, really. <laughs> I had a religious experience. It's the third major religious experience I've had in my life. And it changed a lot of my outlook on writing and art and it led me to write this kind of um essay this extended essay we called the divine which um basically was a bit of a rallying call to creatives to unlock them in a magical creator and to approach their creativity in a very different way and when i'd written that i knew then that i had I had the book and I gathered together some of the essays that were relevant and, and worked well with this uh, other essay I'd written. And so the book is kind of a book of two halves. There's the new content, uh, original content, and then there are the collection of 13 essays uh, as well in it. So uh, there's a lot there, I think. Um, 
and yeah essentially it is a kind of um meditation on and practical as well in some ways guide to um you know unlocking your greatest creative self uh, and as i say i can talk a bit of, if you want about why i think my approach to creativity is slightly different to a lot of the writing craft books out there um, please do well that's very very kind um always always when i'm in, being interviewed i, I feel odd because um never in a normal conversation talk uh, this much <laughs> so <I> feel <laughs> guilty about the waiting um uh, so please interrupt me if you wish but um yes the the essentially in the classical world it's not really a new idea in a way it's just a vivification of something that has maybe been uh, put by the wayside or forgotten in the classical world they had the idea of course of the muse uh, it's the idea that um we don't create from our own intellect we are listening and receive the inspiration and what's really interesting to me is even if you are not religious or spiritual in any way you know uh, i read philip Pullman's uh, collection of essays damon voices and he says the same thing he's like i'm a, he's an atheist he's a devout atheist in fact he's very militant with it uh, but he was like you know the only way i can explain this process is that it's a reception uh i am not creating this the story comes to me and a lot of creatives i think would agree that when they do their best work it's like someone else is doing it for them it's like someone is writing through them or painting through them and um you have to train still you don't just sit and wait around for inspiration you have to train yourself to be a suitable vessel for this influx of creativity and so that's what the book really that's the standpoint uh, from which the book approaches creativity rather than straining mentally to uh, use your intellect to create, which is only ever going to create uh, products of the ego, basically. Uh, and, you know, I've read many novels that don't neglect like that. Somebody being really clever, but there's not actually any heart and soul in it. Versus inviting the creativity in, inviting the inspiration, having a connection with the divine, whether that's the universe or God or your guardian angel or you know however you want to conceptualize that something greater than and beyond yourself and so if you can have a relationship with this thing then uh, it's an act of humility really you're not saying oh, i'm the genius i am the genius you know i i no longer really think of my works as my own i recognize that i am actually probably too limited to have written something like the book of thrice dead uh it is coming from outside of me and i'm just lucky enough to uh be that lightning rod that can conduct it uh, at, at the critical moment in time and my efforts now are not directed towards like as i say thinking that you know i'm a genius and i'm going to come up with some idea instead they're directed towards honing and improving my capacities so that uh, when it comes to me, I am better able to realize and manifest that 
inspiration that is coming from outside myself. So it all sounds very uh, new age and very kind of airy fairy when when you summarise it like that. But in the book, I I like to think that I make it quite uh, practical and I explain what I mean with quite uh, practical and real examples. Um, and show the tangible benefits of this because having having made this switch i am definitely more creative the quality of the work i'm producing is is better and um actually it saves you from a lot of psychological angst as well am i good enough it's like hey it's not me doing it man it's like it's like my demon or my angel doing it (laughs) it's not it's not me like um i no longer have to like you know, feel feel this kind of uh, sense that you know my work is a representation of me and my value as a human being. You know, um, I am just the vessel, and I think that that's this is a really like useful and powerful way forward for creative. Um, and it's a bit paradoxical, but all the best things in life are. I think. Do you have a specific target audience for the book or just writers in general, like newbies or veterans? Yeah, I like to think that the book is useful for both newbies and veterans, like somebody who maybe is on the precipice of trying to write their first book or somebody who's maybe got a few books under their belt, but maybe they've kind of lost the way a bit. Um, Because we all, you, you, it's not, once you crack it, uh, you know, like you have a few books under your belt. I think there's an idea that then you can just keep doing it. But actually, you know, I've written over 50 books. And what I found was actually that was not the case. And that's why I needed to rediscover my my muse, reconnect to it. Uh, and But having having said all that, there is a more specific target audience. You know, this is an overtly spiritual book. I mean, it's called The Divine. So you know, that is not going to appeal to everyone. And that's okay. I'm appealing to people who are creatives. As I say, I like to think there's stuff in there that is useful uh, for, you know, artists, musicians, actors, whatever, as well. Um, But yeah, predominantly writers and uh, people who are open are are ready and they're at that stage in their life where they're like open to considering and exploring the possibilities of like a more spiritual approach to their craft or, 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 or incorporating this more spiritual dimension into their life. Um, uh, because we can build from there and the book can show you how to do that. And, you know, I talk about my pitfalls and issues I've encountered trying to do that and, the many kind of falsehoods that one can be led to believe when embarking upon that kind of that kind of journey so yeah in in some ways i think it could be useful for like any writer uh, which is like a big big market but you know realistically i know this is this book will not appeal to everyone. some people actively be angered by it you know some people just find the idea of the muse and inspiration and and they just find it so outright offensive which i find really interesting you know it's like why why would anyone not want to have a, a relationship with the universe why would anyone 
not want to discover that they have this uh, immense uh, reservoir of kind of power and creativity and energy within them like who wouldn't want that man like aren't we all harry potter secretly hoping one day we get a letter <laughs> from hogwarts and find out we're a wizard like surely that's that's so primal um you know but some people i don't know maybe like it's a cynicism it's a, a defense mechanism you know they they feel the world's been really hard on them and so rather than allow the world to hurt them again they don't allow their expectations to get hyped up you know and i'm not saying that judgmentally because I've done that massively, you know, I've done that many times in my life, but I don't know, but, but yeah. So fundamentally I know that there's going to be an audience there that are not interested, but I think a lot of people, uh, I think the age of, of reason, uh, the Augustan period and the industrial period and this kind of excessive rationalism and materialism, I think it's kind of crumbling because we're kind of seeing the negative consequences of that, you know, um is splitting the atom really such a great thing no um what has it really done to help uh, the human race you know technological advancement is not always positive um that's not to say we throw reason completely out the window you know as you'll discover from reading the book i advocate for for balance you know balance 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 but we've gone so into left brain we've gone so into this rational mindset and i think now we're swinging the other way i think you know gen z are really into vibes they are really into this kind of more spiritual outlook and you know okay it's easy to make fun of new age and it's easy to make fun of it all but i think it's a really uh i think it's like quite a necessary swing the other way you know we've had 200 years of reason and you know we've had the two worst wars in human history uh economic depression the rise of obesity and cancer, you know, more people committing suicide than at any point in human history. You know, I, I, I'm not trying to sound bleak about it, but it just shows, I think. Charles Dickens knew it when he wrote Hard Times. You know, it's about Professor Gradgrind, who's um, the ultimate man of reason. And what happens when you're the ultimate man of reason? You have a complete mental breakdown. Like, the world is not reasonable. The world is not rational. Um you know, there are all kinds of things, even if you're not religious and don't believe in God, like, you know, things like love, love, love is not something that can um, be exposed to empirical methods of and measures, you know, it, it just defeats them, it just destroys them. Um, so we have to recognise we live in a completely irrational reality. And um, I guess my book is a bit of a cheeky invocation and invitation to join me in this crazy and irrational reality <laughs> um, and in doing so hopefully discover some sides of yourself that you maybe didn't know you had it's a shame that anyone would have you know such a, a negative reaction towards that and just completely dismiss it because if you do that you're gonna you're gonna miss out on a lot of good things in life you have to keep an open mind and at least be willing to give new things a chance. Yeah, absolutely, man. I, I think that's such a good attitude to have. And you know, they say all the time, open mind, open mind. And I used to think I had an open mind, but I was actually quite close-minded. And I recognize that, you know, you can be really into spiritual stuff like I am and still be closed-minded in a way because you can be too far that other way. You can be really dismissive of left brain or more more rationalistic thinking and actually I've had to work quite hard in my writing career to, to make my writing a career 
you know, you have to be a businessman. You have to learn that stuff. So it's not as natural to me, but I have forced myself to see the other side and to learn from people who are more practical and more, um, you know. And I think it's what's great is when you can be open to other people and other points of view, you can actually have this beautiful uh, synergy where, okay, you help them. You know, I think I've helped some quite rational, logical people to loosen up and embrace some more emotional, spiritual stuff, which has improved their writing and their art. And in turn, they've helped me massively by giving me more practical, pragmatic skills, uh, you know, a more grounded approach to uh launching my books and you know going about my whole writing career and so you learn from each other and you grow and that's yin yang that's that's the balance of the cosmos and um you know you have to be open to to doing that and it's been a long journey for me to become more open to that but now i see that you know there's a saying an occultist should have his feet planted firmly on the ground but his head in the clouds <laughs> and i think that's a really lovely image that encapsulates um the kind of optimum condition for a human being you know you your, your feet are on the ground you're not in fairyland but your heads are in the clouds you are able to dream you are able to uh you know to, to indulge in, in in fantasy and to lean into fantasy and, and think big thoughts and ask big questions of the universe. Uh, but your feet do still remain on the ground, even though your head are in, is in the clouds. Uh, I think that's a good balance. Absolutely. Balance is important. Joe, between nonfiction versus fiction, do you find one more challenging to write than the other? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, you know what? I... What I've come to realize is that um, there was a big, after I had my, one of the reasons I think that like I feel my uh, spiritual experiences were kind of genuine, or uh, at least I experienced them to be genuine, is that I, there was a big change in me. And I actually found it really difficult to write fiction prose post the experience, but I could write poetry so I had this huge kind of opening up of my creative practice where I suddenly was writing epic poetry. And this was something that I never kind of thought I could do or would be sensible to do. <laughs> and it was this whole new realm for me. But what I realized was it was actually incredibly natural to me, the ability to play with language to use metaphors and similes and allegories in completely different ways. You know, I, I experienced this tremendous joy in discovering that. And, and so where I'm at the moment is that the easiest thing for me to write is probably poetry. It's the most demanding, but it comes the most naturally to me, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. But, uh, and then nonfiction is probably the second easiest in, in a way. And I think this is the interesting thing. You know, we talked about balance and I think I've always been striving for balance. And I think the structure was a way, the five act structure was a way of me balancing myself, a very right brain, very way with the fairies, very fantasy, very spiritual. But the five act structure was a way of 
um, creating a bit of order, <laughs> a bit of uh, discipline and grounding so that that didn't get carried away. And so that was my way of balancing what I was doing. And so poetry is actually, I write formal poetry, so there is a structure there. And nonfiction, of course, is very logical, left brain, very structured. So uh, bizarrely, you know, I, I do find those elements easier than writing prose fiction. I do still write prose fiction, and I, um, I'm working on something at the moment, uh, which I'm quite excited by. But, uh, yeah, I've definitely found it more difficult and i i think if you'd asked me five years ago i would have said completely the opposite but at the moment poetry and non-fiction really uh come quite easily to me and uh, actually the fiction prose is where i have to give a lot to generate um that but i want to do it because i i enjoy it and i, I love it and uh, you can do things just as poetry can do things that prose can't prose can do things that poetry can't right it, it neither is necessarily better or worse than the other but they just are different mediums um uh, but it's taken it's taken me a while it took me it took me maybe two years to kind of get back to writing fiction prose after um my kind of experience in glastonbury so it 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 yeah, it, it's definitely now the hardest for me to do. Joe, I'll be honest with you. I have a, I struggle with poetry. Mm. Uh, I was, I was always something that I dreaded in school was poetry, <laughs> uh, especially when when we had to write our own poems. I always found that to be very difficult. Oh, maybe it's just have trouble wrapping my head around it for some reason. I have not read any of yours yet, but I definitely want to seek some out and give that a try mm. as far as poetry goes really the only poem i've read that i can say that i've enjoyed a great deal is the raven by oh, Edgar Allan poe that's a great I, choice. I love that one it's a great choice but I, I definitely want to check yours out as well oh well, you're, you're very kind and don't worry i don't think you're alone in um dreading poetry i think i think a lot of people do and <laughs> It's, it's partly, of course, the way it's taught. You know, I think it's it's taught very badly. Um, same for you guys in, in the US as it is over here. I think both of us in different ways teach poetry very badly, sadly. And, uh, you know, the classic one I always say is people say, oh, I hate Shakespeare. And you go, so, and I'm like, so how, so have you seen Shakespeare's play? And they go, well, no, we studied it in school. And I go, ah, it's always the same story. You know, Shakespeare didn't want his manuscripts to be read. They were performed. That was how you mm. were supposed to enjoy them, you know? And even even if you can't get to see a production of it, at hearing someone read it out loud, like a few mates sat around with a few drinks just reading different parts, it immediately comes to life. Uh, it's a play. It's It's not meant to be sat and read. And a lot of poetry is experienced in ways in school that you were just never supposed to experience it. You know, um, I mean, poetry is like, um, you know, I, I'm stealing this from Krista, uh, our mutual friend, uh, Krista was a husky, amazing writer, amazing yes. um, founder of the writer's mastermind. And, and she, she often says that like, uh, like really shoddy prose is like cheap swill um great <laughs> prose is like a fine wine 
and poetry is like a whiskey or a cognac and uh, it's true you know you don't drink whiskey in the same way that you drink beer um if you did that you would become very ill <laughs> and very poorly <laughs> um it, it's not meant to be and so it's about um you know giving people the tools to enjoy poetry and access it and you know there's also a narrative that poetry is really pretentious but the funny thing is that um you know it, it's not really pretentious it's passionate and actually what could be uh less pretentious than putting yourself out there enough to write a poem you know i i, I think it's um you know, if you want to remain guarded and uh, have this veneer of intellectualism, then you would write academic nonfiction articles, right? That's maybe a bit harsh on my academic friends, but you know, like that's a that's this very austere medium of writing that's very uh, rules driven and logical and kind of impenetrable and and you know, full of references and all this stuff but poetry is actually like is bearing your soul and um and a lot of poetry that is considered really serious is is misunderstood you know a lot of people forget that milton who wrote paradise lost yeah he wrote some of the most amazing scenes of horror and fantasy ever but there is a lot of humor in paradise lost like milton has a wicked sense of humor and um, it's funny and you are supposed to laugh in places um you know uh and and again the way it's taught uh, a lot of that is overlooked and we forget that and so yeah, i i obviously am advocating very hard for poetry here and uh, I hope <laughs> the listeners will forgive me for that but um you know honestly i think poetry uh I'm talking too much but just one last thing to say is like i really think poetry is uh, uncharted territory for fantasy writers you know i think that fantasy really that's kind of where it needs to go to to refresh and you know when i wrote virtue's end i was very much it was an epic poem it was a continuation of spencer's fairy queen but but it kind of was like this is a fantasy novel but it's written in a, in a poetic form and that's because how better to convey a sense of otherworldliness than with a language that is not immediately familiar, right? That is not pedestrian. How better to evoke a sense of magic and um, fantasy and phantasm and dream than with language that is itself working rhythmically, mimetically uh, in terms of its sound on the kind of unconscious of of the reader and i'm working on more kind of epic fantasies written in poetic form because i i think this is a really interesting uh, area for fantasy novelists to explore you know i think this is a, a new avenue for us where we can take our reader to even more fantastical places by virtue of the language uh, having this intensity and form and uh, elegance and beauty to it. Um, that's just my opinion. I could be crazy and I could be doomed to failure, but... <laughs> um, uh, I really like the, the point that you made about poetry not being taught very well in schools and that it's it's not meant to be read in a classroom. It's meant to be acted out. 
Mm. And I know from my own experience with Shakespeare in school, uh, I always found it kind of drab. Mm. But I think I might have felt differently if we were to actually do a more hands-on approach and act some of it out. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, Shakespeare is one of the funniest guys who ever lived. I mean, you know, Twelfth Night has... I've watched versions of Twelfth Night that have made me cry, you know, sob with laughter, just, just, just like almost embarrassing levels of uncontrollable laughter. Like he, you know, he, comedies were one of his his fortes. Really, uh, he was amazing at tragedies too, but he was he was arguably even better at comedy. And um, so, for 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 a classroom to convey a drab experience of Shakespeare is is really quite tragic you know um because there is so much humor there and and so much stuff that is still funny for a modern audience it hasn't dated in the way so some of shakespeare's contemporaries i'll fully hold my hands up and say okay i like them but i'm a weirdo i like elizabethan literature and you know there are obscurities and stuff in there that don't really translate well to the modern audience and you have to know your history or know know some obscure tidbit of information in order to kind of get the joke but not with shakespeare i mean it, it, it's it's funny just because the characters are funny right and that type of humor doesn't really date because it's a commentary on human nature and human nature is is fairly eternal so um yeah absolutely again i'm advocating very hard here maybe too hard but um, <laughs> but that's I, okay uh, i'm curious what have you got what have you got in the pipeline what are you working on right now well that's a very very lovely question every writer loves to be asked um the next big thing for me is the i guess it's a technically a relaunch of my epic series, The Book of Thrice Dead. So this is um, a six-book series. It was originally published over about seven years, and it was published by loads of different indie publishers in different places. It was confusing which book came after the next. You couldn't... Even figuring out the order of the books was a mental challenge. Um it was super messily done uh, because I, you know, didn't know any better at the time, and I was just sending it off to different publishers. And um, but uh, some bad things happened that led to some extremely good things, which meant that I ended up with all the rights to my books back. And I've been working on the last six months, longer even, on getting them all together and getting them re-released as a complete set. Uh, and oh man, the covers look so good. It's all come together. I actually wrote more than 10,000 words of new material for the series as well to really like join it all together and, and, and edited some of the earlier books as well to bring them a bit more up to my kind of current, current pro style. And I'm, I'm really excited to share this with the world. I, I think it's one of the best things I've done. And, you know, writers sometimes get a bit, um, sad when they when they think that something they wrote a while ago is like the best thing they've done and they're like oh they, you always want as a writer your new thing to be the best thing you've ever done right but i think i would have to freely hold my hand up and say this may well be the best thing i've ever done and may continue to be the best thing i've ever done for a good while at least um it's you know interdimensional serial killers fantasy landscapes a multiverse apocalypse it's um it's wild. It's a wild ride. And um, I think 
one of the reasons I I knew I had to republish it was because even though it was published originally in that crazy format, all the different publishers, no matching covers, people had to find it and dig it up. People were bothering. People were making the effort to do that, even though it was so non-user friendly. And that's what made me realize that, you know, this story is worth something. It's worth saving and it means something to people. And so now I've made it a lot easier for people to read this story and uh, I'm giving away the first book for free on my mailing list. So um, I only send three newsletters a year. It's not a spammy mailing list. It's a very, very restrained one. But I am going to be sending out uh, book one to mailing list subscribers uh, later this year. So if you are curious, but you don't you know, necessarily want to part with your hard-earned cash, which is fair enough, you can get a little, little 50,000-word uh, sample and if you like it, well, there's five more books afterwards. And, uh, you know, it's truly a, truly, a, uh, you know, to say it's an amazing story is like just the height of arrogance, isn't it? It's just hubris to just say that about your own work. But um, it's amazing in that it, it means a lot for me. It was a story that I think defined who I was as a writer and what I wanted to do. And so, yeah that's the next thing there are other things as always i have 25 fire brands in in the in the fire you know i've <laughs> always got a million and one things on at once because it's kind of how i like to do it but that's the next really big important thing and you know i would say even if you this is a bit cheeky but even if you've read um some of the books before i guarantee you've never read them like this because i've added so much content and edited them and and you know it's, it's a really unique experience um to go through the whole six book sequence uh so yeah do you have a, a tentative release date yeah so um as i say book one is going out um this year september i'm being a little vague because uh i can share this with your listeners i think i'm and with you i'm i'm kind of doing a soft launch so the idea behind that is that you you know a select group aka my mailing list um get the book and they review the book hopefully and so you have a bit of a um, uh a social proof you have reviews you have things in place you know already before you actually launch the book and show it to the world so i'm hoping to generate some you know reviews and interest in book one uh with a soft launch first before i announce it to the world so that's why there's not like a hard release date but then uh, book two will be um first of february 2023 books three will be first of march 2023 and each one will come out on the first of the month uh, all the way up to june 1st uh, next year and so that's like going to be a rapid release sequence next year uh, so the first book will be out for a bit of time and then february is when book two comes out and then it and then the train don't stop after that <laughs> then every month of your life there is a joe sale book coming out you can't escape me <laughs> you can't run from me i'm there i am there in the algorithm in amazon's algorithm and facebook's algorithm twitter's algorithm i am there my name constantly sounding for all eternity. 
And you know what? There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think some people will find something very wrong with that, but it's it's, <laughs> it's too late. It's like uh, Ozymandias in uh, Alan Moore's Watchmen. It's like, you know, uh, I wouldn't have told you my evil master plan if there was anything you can do about it. I pushed the button 25 <laughs> minutes ago. <laughs> You're definitely an author who who knows what they're talking about. Thank you. I trust your work, and I feel like wherever you're going to release, it's going to be a quality product. And I'm I'm already subscribed to your 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 mailing list. So I'm going to try <laughs> out for that. Oh yeah. So Joe, what kind of if someone out there is looking for a, a new book to read, what kind of recommendations do you have? Oh wow. Um... This is a really well. Actually, before I answer that, thank you so much for your kind words. It really means a lot, Dan. And I do try oh, really welcome. hard to. Um, I've spent a lot of time working on the craft of my books, um, and so when you say that, I feel like all that time was was justified. I didn't. I, I, it's only recently I've really upped my marketing game, and sometimes I'm like, oh, I should have done the marketing a long time ago, you know, but. Actually, I think it's been good to get the quality of the work in place first before I start trying to send it out to the rest of the world. And when you say that, it really validates that decision. So thank you. Um, that's really awesome. And you are a fantastic writer too. And I hope to be reading more of your work. You must, you must <laughs> release more. Um, oh, thank you. Absolutely. Uh, and it, I've bought myself some time now to answer your question. Um, <laughs> um, it, it's a really tough one because there are so many uh, people uh, writing amazing stuff. And we, we are in a bit of a golden age, you know. We are saturated with just amazing releases. And I will, I will say that I personally think at the moment the indies are where it's at. That's where the really interesting books are. That's where the really, you know, the stories that stay with me, that blow me away, are invariably indie books. Um, I've had a stack of a really, really large TBR uh, recently. And, you know, it's a mixture of traditional and indie. And it's the indies really who who are winning that uh, that little mini competition. You know, they're the, they're the books that I find myself in loving reading wanting more from that author and staying with me. So I'm going to focus on indies in my recommendations. Um, I uh, absolutely think uh, everyone should read uh, Krista. Our friend Krista Wasahusky. Admittedly, her work is not dark fantasy, um, but it's like a gothic fairy tale. You know, it... There may be no elves in it, but um, there is a, a sense of of the mystical and the mythical uh, and the erotic too. She writes erotic scenes like nobody else on planet Earth. It's just, just incredible stuff. And, you know, she goes into so many really deep themes of, you know, addiction and heartbreak. And um, she's an amazing writer. And I think it's a testimony to how amazing she is that she doesn't write in a genre I would normally read, a.k.a. a kind of, you know, dark romance. But I still love it. So, you know, I think she's one of the most incredible writers out there right now. And everyone should read her. Amazing uh, person, too. Oh, just the best person. So, so kind, so generous, um, you know. Uh, I would have given up 
writing a long time ago if it wasn't for her that's that's the honest truth um so her book is uh, called oblivion black it'd be helpful if i gave people the name wouldn't it oblivion black uh, that's what people should be getting on um I'd also love to give a shout out to Dan Soul, spelled S-O-U-L-E. That man is a legend. Uh, he is such a nice guy as well. He's done so much for me. And um, he actually did the covers for the Thrice Dead, the book of Thrice Dead, uh, those six amazing covers I've got for my new series. And he's really talented. Um, but, you know, he, he's a talented cover designer, but he's an even more talented writer. Um, he's got loads of uh, horror, dark fantasy books. And he's got a novel called uh, Neolithica, which is about uh, a group of university professors who discover like a bog body, like a mummy. Uh, that is insane. That book's off the chain. Then he's got uh, a book called Savage, which is like a kind of take on the vampire mythos, but it's really weird and unusual. It's set in London. Um, that is a humdinger of a book and he always um lands his emotional punches dan he's really good at those emotional beats um, and he's got such a lovely prose style uh just really beautiful so um yeah dan soul another indie author everyone should be reading um neolithica savage um really 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 top stuff um, he's got he's got five or six books out and they're all they're all absolute bangers um i i do i'll do one more should i i'll do one more there's so many people and i'm i you know whenever i answer these questions i always feel guilty for how many people i'm leaving out um, it's hard to get them all there's so many talented authors out there there are so many talented authors um and what's great though is that a lot of the authors that I've liked for a long time are beginning to get recognition and they are beginning to break out a bit. And um, I just love seeing that journey, you know, and I want I want them to keep going and just keep keep soldiering on and getting out of that kind of uh, yeah, funk we all end up in sometime. But um, uh, the third I would have to recommend would be Esalt Murphy. She is an um, amazing Irish writer. She... Um, wrote a series which is um called seven days in hell that is so good you think it's one thing and it's something completely different uh, there's been two books in it and the third book's coming out shortly um really good series highly recommended she's written some awesome fantasy stuff like she wrote a book called the mountains of sorrow which is like the cover and the kind of blurb will make you think that like maybe it's a bit kind of uh ya or, or 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 even like children's but there is some gnarly horror in there um it it's her horror roots are still there uh even in her like fantasy work um and uh, she also wrote a novella called all of me which is one of the best novellas i've ever read honestly it, it's an incredible story um that is like pure dark fantasy and really really amazing character work really amazing storytelling again she she like dan is is just amazing at hitting those emotional beats um and she makes you care about her characters really deeply and uh, all of me just just completely blew me away I, I reviewed it on my website and um just a phenomenal book so yeah esalt dan and krista those three 
indie authors, you know, I think are simply outstanding. And I, I think, you know, with any luck and uh, if the universe is kind, we will see more and more of them. And quite right too, you know, they deserve to be topping the charts. Um, and, you know, whatever path to success they take, whether it's traditional publishing or, or smashing the indie scene, uh, wh- whichever way they go, like, um, you know, they they deserve that massive success. Uh, they they really are amazing writers. Uh, so yeah, that, that's probably three I'd I'd recommend. Um, I can throw in I, the the one other one I would throw in just as a bonus is one I already mentioned, which is Bleak Warrior by Alistair Rennie. That that one, that one's for the crazy listeners on your your podcast. <laughs> oh, very cool. Some of those books that you mentioned, I I have in my reading list. So I'm. Looking forward to checking those out. Anything else that you'd like to mention? Um, if not, we'll head into plugging your wares there. <laughs> plugging my wares. My... <laughs> Welcome. Here's my bazaar. Interesting trinkets. <laughs> um, you have to leave that in. Um, yeah, I just want to say thank you. Th- thank you so much for having me on and allowing me to ramble about all kinds of crazy topics. Um, uh, you're a fantastic host, Dan, and it, it's, it's been such an honor to be uh, on, you know, a happy moment. Thank you, thank you. I feel like we could go on and on, but that just means we'll have something to talk about for the next time. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I would love to come on a second time if that's not uh, taking the, the, the cake or the pie away from, from, from another author, of course. Uh, but uh, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Joe, uh, so thank you very much for joining me. It's been great having you. And would you like to share where people can find your work? Yeah, totally. Uh, so if you go to my website, which is themindflayer.com, nice and simple, T-H-E, mindflayer.com, uh, no capitals or hyphens or anything like that, uh, you can get uh, a free copy of one of my novellas, The Meaning of the Dark, and um, if you sign up to my mailing list, and you can also get uh, the first book of the Thrice Dead by doing that as well. It's not advertised on the website, um, but yeah, you, you, you'll get both. Uh, and also you can see my reviews and uh, book reviews and other things if you want even more book recommendations. <laughs> so uh, that's always good too. Um, if you want to connect with me on Twitter, I'm at Joseph Word Smith. Uh, Joseph Wordsmith, again, all one word, no hyphens or, or underscores or dashes or anything. Uh, and I hang out on Twitter a little bit and um, mainly just chat about fantasy nonsense, really, and Warhammer and other things. So uh, if you like that, then you can join me there. Uh, and if you if you've just decided that you've completely fallen in love with me and, and you just can't get enough uh, and you want to just make the leap, then I have a Patreon as well. Um, so uh, yeah, you can find that on my website, and uh, it's a really really cool membership. My patrons are simply the best. If you become a patron, you get your name in the back of my book. And uh, you also get to read stuff before it's published. You get videos explaining the kind of weird occult principles behind my work. Uh, You get access to uh, the magical writing podcast episodes I do with SC Mendez before they 
go live uh, there's, there's there's a lot of content on there and um people seem to really really enjoy it and have fun and we have some really wacky wacky discussions on there and uh, we had one the other day about the most esoteric book titles that we've come up with and some of the recommendations were just out of this world um it's truly i i i thought i was very uh, au fait and experienced with um crazy book titles from reading Carlton malik the third and bizarro press uh, bizarro books and razorhead press but um my patrons put me to shame so um yeah, it's, it's, it's a really good time. Obviously, I appreciate that we've only just met, but um, if you do uh, want to belong to an exciting community, then I, I highly recommend Patreon. And in case anybody is curious, Joe, uh, would you explain to them what exactly is a mind flare? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's that's great. I really should explain that. Um, so I've, I've adopted the mind flare as my alter ego, but a mind flare is uh, a creature of, um, of 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 Dungeons and Dragons fame. Um, they haven't knocked on my door to shut me down just yet. Uh, <laughs> copyright infringement, but um, it's fine to take it as a super case. I just don't uh, don't write about mind flares too often. Um, I call them other things, but um, yes, a mind flayer is like a like a humanoid with an octopus head, and they have the power to dominate and control mortal minds. Uh, they can also shoot lightning bolts out of their hands, which is very convenient. And they're like a kind of quote unquote evil race in Dungeons and Dragons. Um, I think actually there's one in Stranger Things, so I think they've become slightly more mainstream now, which is uh, always a good thing. But um, uh, they also feature in Hidetaka Miyazaki's um, Demon Souls. If anyone is a fan of the Souls games, go back and play Demon Souls. There is a uh, asylum in there that is run by Mind Flayers. It's the most incredible, insane thing. Um, it's a gaming experience that will just kind of stay with me forever, really. So I, I'm quite fascinated by these tentacled creatures and how they can control other people's minds. And I guess I viewed it as a kind of a, a good uh, appellation or supricate for a writer because you're kind of getting inside people's head, right, with your words and uh, changing how they think, perhaps. You know, the deepest literature and the deepest art can do that. So yeah, mind players are big tentacle boys who control you with their mind, and I love them, and I think they're really cool. I think they're misrepresented. I don't think they're all evil, you know, anti-heroes <laughs> and all that. Um, yep. Wizards of the Coast, why don't you give me the right to write your epic anti-hero mind player story? You, you just, just, just give me a call, you know, and I'll write that <laughs> book for you. But yes, that is what a mind player is, and that is what I am. Awesome. Joe, thank you again. Folks, the new book is The Divine. Check that out, and we'll definitely be talking to you again. Thank you so much, Dan. It's been a pleasure. All right. Thank you, Joe, and thank you to all of you for joining me on my Season 2 premiere episode. I've also migrated to a no, new host. You can find me on Anchor. The website for that is anchor.fm slash a happy moment. You can also find me on Twitter at a happy moment pod. That's all I've got for this week and got another big interview coming up in the future. So stay tuned for that.
Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time. Bye. Bye for now.